Greetings, everyone. This is the Sound Health Option Show with Richard Talk to Me Guy and Sherry Edwards. Good morning, Sherry. Good morning, Sherry. Good morning, Richard. We have Gwen back again. Remember last week when uh, we didn't get to complete the show? So Gwen Olson is back with us. We think that's wonderful. She is a whistleblower against Big Pharma, and as such, she's the spearhead against the policies they have that are not supportive of our health, the people's health. Um, Her phones went down right before the show, and she said that's a usual thing, that people try to keep her off the air. I believe it. It's happened to us. Um, And she finally was able to come back on using a borrowed Skype connection. So we're excited about having her here back today to bring more of of her story and and how you, the audience, can become involved. And there is an echo, so I'm just going to mute myself, and Richard, take it away. All right. I would like to, uh, first I'm going to start by reminding people, because this is one of those shows. Actually, the show we did last week with Gwen um, is available at, you can go to soundhealthoptions.com, click on the radio tab, and it's either you can hear it at the Blog Talk archive player. And so that's show one. We've interviewed Gwen a couple of years ago when her book, uh, Confessions of an RX Drug Pusher, came out, which is a great read. Fiercely good. Um, maybe not fun at all times, but really good. And we really talked about that with her. And, and I know it's going to be a show that you're going to want to hear again. So I would suggest going there, and about 10 to 15 minutes after the end of the show today, you'll be able to find today's show. So you'll be able to listen to both shows back-to-back. And you can go to any of your favorite podcast aggregators, which is either iTunes or Dogcatcher or Pocket Casts or, you know, there's a bunch of them. Pick your aggregator of choice. And listen to the shows and share them with people. Because I know today we're going to talk more extensively about solutions, and we're going to talk about this great article that was produced that she put up or got up at uh, the Wellness Journal. I can't find the title right now, but she'll tell us as soon as she comes in. And it's just really important information. It's really a combination of being aware, solutions you can take into your own hands, which is part of you know. Sherry's world of let's take our health in our own hands. Let's really take care of ourselves. Let's start there. But first, I have a short announcement. I thought this is pretty amazing. Uh, there it is. And it seems so perfect. Uh, this is a report from a bio- biotech and pharmaceutical section of CNBC. The title of the article, Pharma Bro, Martin Shkreli, sentenced to seven years in prison, says, this is my fault. So he went all teary and sad and tried not to be sent to jail as long as he thought. The uh, Farmer Bro, Martin, was the notorious uh, Farmer Bro, gained infamy for raising the price of the drug Daraprim by more than 5,000% while running the company then known as Turing Pharmaceuticals. And he was ordered to forfeit $7.4 million and give up his ownership of a – well, that's a whole other story. But it's, you know, things are actually happening. You know, People are paying attention. People are getting busted. People are getting in trouble, which I'm happy to see. I know it sounds maybe bad or mean, but geez, you know, somebody and – it's, and it's really founders like Gwen that are really aiding this process. At least that's my vision. Really, that you know, it's time for people to know and be aware and beginning to take care of themselves. So, with that, Gwen Olson is the author of the award-winning book *Confessions of an RX Drug Pusher*. A 15-year veteran pharmaceutical rep, Gwen worked for McNeil Pharmaceutical Syntex Laboratories, Bristol Myers Squibb, and others. She was a hospital rep and a specialist rep for the majority of her career, selling prescription drugs to doctors. Gwen joins us to share her unique industry insider's perspective of the current U.S. drug problems. She gives details about her awakening process that began with a realization that the information she was disseminating to doctors was extremely skewed 
and later was ignited through a family member's heartbreaking journey of becoming a mental health patient. Gwen joins us to talk about a recently published piece in the Wellbeing Journal, Psychiatric Drugs, Our Children, and Marketing Madness. Welcome back, Gwen Olson. Thank you so much, Richard. It's a pleasure to be here and to actually be able to be here on time today. <laughs> it's, it's so exciting. It just all came together. It's like magic. Radio just happened. I know. When it's things great. work, I just get tickled. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Let's keep our fingers crossed, people. <laughs> Please. Um, I want to jump. So I think that's is there anything is there any other point you think we need to reiterate from last week or do you think we can jump back in is there something you want to pull from what we talked about last week well i just like to remind the audience that when we're talking about children and we're talking about mental health uh, any mental health diagnosis but particularly with our children we have to make sure that we get it right because mental health diagnoses are very subjective and that means that they're given by a third party's observation on behaviors and symptoms. They are not a disease state or an illness that can be measured by a CAT scan or a urine test or a blood test or an MRI or anything of that nature. These are things that are very subjective. And so you have to realize and educate yourselves when you're trying to find assistance or help for your children for their symptoms, that once they receive a mental health label, that that label will follow them for the rest of their lives and can have some very drastic implications down the road. So it's really important that if someone encourages you to drug your child, be it um, a school teacher or uh, someone of, of authority or even if it's, you know, your your primary practitioner, the doctor or pediatrician that's seeing your child, that you get not only second and third opinions, but you do some due diligence and do some of your own research to find out what may be causing those symptoms and how you might be able to alleviate those symptoms without pharmaceuticals. Because once you go down the road of pharmaceutical intervention, you primarily could count on your child being a customer for the pharmaceutical industry for life. Because these drugs cause comorbid psychiatric conditions, and over time, the child's condition will generally worsen, they'll get additional diagnoses, and it just becomes a big fiasco. It's something that I have experienced personally. And um, for those of you who aren't familiar with my story, I will just let you know that I lost one of the dearest, most beautiful people that I'd ever known in my life, which was my niece, whom I was very close to, and she committed suicide by burning herself alive. So I use that story not to be sensational, but to let people know that I have a very heartfelt experience that has motivated me to come forward. And as a mother, I have that protective instinct that I want people to get it right when it comes to our kids. If you want to take drugs, if you want to run to the doctor every time that you feel ill or you have a malady of some sort, that is your prerogative as an adult, and I am all for your right to do so. But when it comes to your children, or if you're responsible for an elder, an elder person or someone that you are taking the responsibility for their, their health care, then you have the moral responsibility to do some due diligence and research and to get it right because those people do not have a choice in the matter. And when it comes to our kids, they, they have authority figures everywhere forcing them to take drugs. They have to take drugs because their teachers tell them to. They have to take drugs because their doctors tell them to. They have to take drugs because their caretakers tell them to. They have to take drugs because their parents tell them to because their doctors tell them to so they're a very compliant patient population and that makes them a very lucrative patient population for the pharmaceutical industry and that is why our children are so largely targeted and besides that all children have some sort of health care insurance they're either if they're not privately covered then they're also covered by Medicaid so that is a big incentive, a financial incentive for the pharmaceutical industry to push drugs on our children, and we have to be the gatekeepers for that. And I implore you, please educate yourselves about this. So I want to jump back for a moment. This was not my launch question, but you did it again. You said something that I just have to really have you break down for us for a moment. Break down the phrase you used, comorbid psychiatric condition. That sounds 
ugly. I mean, bad. It, well, it is ugly, and, and it's actually very often a drug-induced um, phenomenon. And what I mean by that is let's take a child, for example, that the teacher has sent home and said, I think your child has ADHD, and we recommend that he see a psychiatrist, he or she see a psychiatrist or a psychologist, and, and you know, get diagnosed. And if they have ADHD, they're not allowed back into the classroom until they get put on medication because they're disturbing the rest of the class, okay? So you take the child to the doctor. The doctor indeed decides that the child has ADHD based on a a checklist of symptoms that they check off by asking you questions. And then the child is placed on a stimulant drug. And these stimulant drugs for ADHD are amphetamine-type drugs. So they're very similar the way they have an effect on the brain is very similar to is as if you were taking cocaine, okay? So for those of you out in the audience who, you know, were around in the 70s and 80s, you might know that if you take a little bit of cocaine, you might feel like you were on top of the world for the first time or the second or third time. But if you were to do that on a daily basis for six months or a year, come back and talk to me then and tell me how you're feeling because all of a sudden you're not going to be Um, as healthy or as happy as you were when you first started using that drug. It's the exact same thing with children. These drugs long-term will cause the physiology of the brain to change, the neurotransmitter production and pathways to change. And so what happens is many children now that were probably just not attentive in class or bored or maybe they couldn't, you know, couldn't sit still, they are now depressed. And so they're going to get a depression diagnosis. And if they are put on antidepressants and now the combination of drugs and the way that the drugs have affected their brains causes them to have maybe a manic episode, then they're going to be labeled as bipolar. And if I can back up a little bit, I can tell you that there are studies that actually document that over 85% of children who are diagnosed with pediatric bipolar disorder have been previously placed on stimulant drugs. So it's kind of one of those things that once they're placed on a a psychiatric medication, their health and their mental health in particular deteriorates over time, and they end up getting one diagnosis after the other diagnosis until eventually they begin getting diagnoses as being schizophrenic or schizoaffective. So this is something that I have seen not in dozens but in hundreds of cases because I've been doing this now for 12 years and I've had people contact me over and over and over again. Well, my child was first, you know, diagnosed with autism or diagnosed with ADHD and put on this drug. And by the time this journey was over, by the time they were contacting me just out of mere exasperation and frustration with the the allopathic healing community, trying to find answers for their child, they had had four or five different psychiatric diagnoses. Yikes. And was there, I want to go back just slightly in history, was there some sort of magical tipping point when this, when this, that triggered this, like, it seems sort of suddenly from reading your book and your paper, that suddenly we had four times, you know, we had a massive increase in children being diagnosed as having a, you know, conduct disorder condition or, or some kind of thing. Was there some sort of I mean, in my in cinematically, I think there was a smoke-filled room with people drinking, you know, dark liquor and smoking cigars. But that's just my scandalous view. But I mean, was there a tipping point when this suddenly occurred, where somebody suddenly went, "Wow, how did this? What happened?" Well, you know, it, I don't think it was just one thing that happened. I think it was a series of events. But what primarily happened was when they started, when the the advent of the SSRI antidepressants came out and it all almost became, you know, vogue to have taken a designer drug in order to change your personality. And that was in, you know, the late 80s, early 90s, that this became very vogue and people were being encouraged to take Prozac and that was like, you know, one of the biggest SSRIs that was, you know, ever 
that ever came out. They had the biggest market share, and it was on the front of Time magazine that you can design your own personality. And then once these drugs start taking off, the way that the pharmaceutical industry measures its performance is by market share increase. So they always are looking for new patient populations. And so there were a number of things, a number of psychiatrists, for example, Dr. Joseph Biederman was single-handedly given um, the honors of having created the bipolar epidemic, the pediatric bipolar epidemic that did not exist prior to that. Just by changing a few of the criteria and diagnoses, you know, children that had been previously labeled as being oppositionally defiant all of a sudden became bipolar. And when there had been less than 1% of all the population having been diagnosed as bipolar prior to this period of time, all of a sudden now we have 2% of all children that are diagnosed as being bipolar. Again, a lot of it has to do with drug intervention. And it also has to do with the way that schools are compensated. A lot of it has to do with disability rankings because children that have learning disorders, they, the, the test scores can be thrown out. Schools receive a special compensation for those children. If those children are in any kind of foster care or state care situation, they're considered a higher risk, and their, uh, their caretakers are also compensated financially. So I guess what I want to say is that you can go back and you can look at a number of factors that has created this monster that we are currently dealing with. But if the only thing that you really need to do to know what the origin of it is, is to follow the money. Because wherever there is money to be made off of our children, they're, be, they're being used as a human commodity. And can you back up and tell us a little bit more about the schools are compensated? Yes. <laughs> Excuse me. I, I couldn't find my radio voice there. I, I lost it for a moment. Just like, really? Schools are compensated for this? How did that Well, because you have... It's a higher level of care, so the more children that you have on disability, and again, I, I think I mentioned this in the last program last week, is that if you want to see uh, if you want to see examples of that, and you want to read a great book about it, read Anatomy of an Epidemic by Robert Whitaker. And it really breaks down the disability rates and how many children were on disability, like, say, in the late 60s. There was, like, only 16,000 or so children on disability. And you fast forward to 2009, and there's over 600,000 children that were then on disability. And then there's been about 100,000 new recipients new recipients annually since that. So the disability rates are primarily due to learning disabilities, okay? So the learning disabilities then puts that child at a higher risk rate so educators of those children are compensated for those for taking on those children. And again, like in, I was in Texas for many years, and the Texas school system, if a child had a learning disability and was diagnosed as ADHD, they could literally throw out their test scores and didn't have to figure those into the school's overall ranking because schools get money according to their academic rankings. And so it becomes, mm. again, a monetary incentive to label and, and drug our children. Wow. Um, and how kind of makes did, you sick, doesn't it? <laughs> it makes me, you know, think I need a cocktail and it's only nine o'clock in the morning. I mean, really, I, uh, it just infuriates me. And why did Biederman get such recognition and power versus uh, Fred Bauman, who seems to have gotten ignored? Talk, more, talk about Bauman, but also talk about the like difference between these two gentlemen who had ideas and did things, but Bauman had a real attitude, but seems to be kind of ignored. Well, I can tell you in a nutshell the difference between the, the two gentlemen. Fred Bauman was a neurologist who had great integrity and was someone who was trying to disclose the truth about um, a fictitious ADHD diagnosis and how it did not have a neurological foundation to it. And Dr. Biederman was a psychiatrist who was a lapdog of the pharmaceutical industry that was promised funding and made millions of dollars over his research that he was actually, and, I, and this is provable, this is not, you know, something that, I, that I'm not uh, saying that can't be proven, but um, that he actually was given 
results that were requested by the pharmaceutical industry, and he promised them prior to even conducting the clinical trials. So Dr. Biederman was very highly published. He was very well supported. He was funded by the pharmaceutical industry as one of their spokespersons or opinion leaders, as they like to call them. And so therefore, his his information and his studies were touted and passed and published everywhere when on the on the flip side of that, Dr. Bowman, who was actually a neurologist who had had discovered neurological disease and had a high level of integrity and wanted to speak out against ADHD, was pretty much discredited and pushed under the rug. Of course, he's an older gentleman. I don't believe he's still practicing, but he does still speak out, to my knowledge. But um, that's what happens to doctors who don't follow the program, who don't go along with, you know, the uh, pharmaceutical industry's whims. And, and that happened to a lot of different people. So it's not just one or two doctors. It's a medical mafia. And when you don't follow the dictates of the mafia, we all know what happens. Yikes. And where, where does the FDA fit in here? Are, isn't the idea that the FDA is theoretically supposed to be protecting us? Well, theoretically, yes, that's that's what they want okay. the consumer. That's what they want the consumer to believe. But the FDA, you know, I was I began in the pharmaceutical industry in the the mid 1980s is when I started my career, and back then I was made to feel by my district manager and my regional managers and all of that that every office that I was in there was a potential FDA person there that would be listening to what I had to say to the doctor, and that was the reason why I had to parrot the company's byline and and information to a T so that I wouldn't risk any kind of legal liability for myself or for the company. And so I was always believing that the pharmaceutical industry was, you know, their watchdog was the FDA. So it was about, I can't even remember exactly when it is now because it's been so long, but there was a time that I started to sell a drug, a statin drug for lowering cholesterol. And I remember uh, it was a time when Lipitor had just come out, and we were all concerned about the fact that Lipitor lowered cholesterol levels much better than the drug that we were currently tasked to sell. And so I asked at a district meeting, well, how are we going to make up the difference in market share? Because that's always the concern is that, you know, there's a, there's a set number of people that are eligible for the drugs, and the more competition that comes onto the market, then that's going to shrink your market share. So the district manager looked at me at that time and said, well, don't worry about that. You know what you do if you want a bigger piece of pie. And I said, no, what do you do? And he says, you bake a bigger pie. Our friends in the FDA have determined that we're going to change the clinical guidelines for LDL, and we have found in our studies that if you lower LDL below 100, that you have fewer side effects, or that you have fewer problems. He said, but the problem with this drug is that it lowers LDL too much. And if you lower LDL too much, you can wreak havoc in all the body systems. So he says, we're going to change those guidelines and we're going to be able to get our market share, but this other drug is going to be problematic because they're going to create additional disease states. Well, that's exactly the information that I should have been instructed and told about prior to having starting to sell statin drugs, but I had never heard that until it became a factor that I needed to use in order to sell against the competition. But it wasn't that issue that really bowled me over. It was the fact that he had referenced our friends in the FDA because I wasn't aware until that time that we had friends in the FDA. I thought the FDA was our enemy and that they were there to, you know, control everything that we did and to make our lives miserable. But I went further on in my career to find out that, no, the FDA was actually there for our benefit, and that's what they were. They were cohorts with the pharmaceutical industry, and they were in collusion with pharma. And once I really realized that, I became angry because I knew then that the consumer had no protection. And that was one of the reasons that I decided that, you know, as a moral being, that I had to speak out with all the knowledge base and all the information that I had garnered over my years of tenure with them. Okay. Does that explain that to you? <laughs> yes, 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 yes. 
I just have to sit down. Um, and I tell you, I, I actually went to and testified before the psychopharmacologic committee of the FDA for the antidepressants to try to get the black box label expanded for antidepressants, and we were successful in doing that in the 2006 um, meeting. But that was one of the biggest dog and pony shows that I had seen since I had left the pharmaceutical industry. It was absolutely insane how they had first brought this information before this committee and before Congress in 1991, and it took until 2006 for them to act on it. And then it was an absolute political uh, I mean, it was a nightmare. It was just crazy. They wouldn't agree to take and expand the label for children. It was up to that point. It was like children to eight, um, children to twelve or thirteen, and they wanted to expand it to children to eighteen. And in order for them to expand that that black box label, they wanted to be able to uh, caution that they they needed still that elderly needed to take it. They didn't want to give up one patient population without securing another patient population. So it was an excellent demonstration of how, you know, it's all money motivated. Yikes. Now let's move to talking about this great article in the Wellbeing Journal, The Psychiatric Drugs Are Children and Marketing Madness. And I'll put that in the show link in the show notes over at Blog Talk Radio. Let's talk about that, and particularly with the focus on the recent shootings, the ongoing shootings, just the relationship between these psychiatric drugs and you know the madness that it seems to be, these are my words, creating or acting out as, or I'm not sure what the word would be, but talk about all that. Please. Well, one of the things that I started noticing, and, and I hope that uh, your listeners will go back and listen to the, uh, the brief you know, show that we had that we were able to do last week together, um, was that I started really researching deeply into each one of the school shootings and the mass shootings that were starting to happen on a regular basis because I had actually predicted that this would happen in my book that I first published in 2005 because I knew that as these drugs became more and more popular and that they were um, prescribed to vulnerable patient populations, and that doesn't mean just our children but our elderly and also our servicemen and women who come back who are suffering from from PTSD and they're also put on these antidepressants and and these psychiatric um, antipsychotic drugs. These these people are more more vulnerable, and their physiologies, children are more vulnerable because they have developing brains and kidneys and livers, so they're not sometimes um, able to metabolize the drugs as well, or they're rapid metabolizers, and they can experience withdrawal side effects between doses. And then if we're talking about our service men and women, right now, uh, I believe my statistics, I don't have them in front of me, but I, the last time I looked, it was like one in six um, servicemen members were on an antidepressant drug. And so if these drugs cause side effects such as hostility and anxiety and mania and hallucinations, both auditory and visual, this can be a real a real problematic scenario for people who have access to weaponry. So I started looking at, at this um, this shooter, you know, dilemma, and I would see that they were always pushing for gun control every time that one of these events would happen, but then they would never address the underlying thing that I kept seeing popping up in each and every one of these events, that the child or the perpetrator was on some sort of psychiatric medication. And so they, it's almost like a footnote that they don't even address. Or if they do address it, then they start pushing for more mental health care. And that's what they call it, mental health care. Well, what mental health care equates to is more pharmaceuticals. So we're actually compounding the problem if we're going to drug more people and try to diagnose people earlier. Again, this is just one of the agendas of the pharmaceutical industry to expand their patient populations, to get more people on drugs, and then they make more money that way. But this problem is not going to go away until someone addresses that all of these children that um, 
the Columbine shooter, the Fort Hood shooter, the Virginia Tech shooter, the Fort Lauderdale Airport shooter, the Las Vegas shooter, the Washington Naval Yard shooter, the Sandy Hook shooter, the Florida Marjorie uh, Stoneman Douglas High School shooter that just happened, the Aurora Theater shooter, on and on and on. These people were all on these dangerous psychiatric drugs that cause these symptoms that very often cause people to become, they either have uh, suicidal ideation and they will commit suicide, or they have homicidal ideation and they commit suicide and they go out and shoot up a, you know, a school yard of people or they kill their whole family and the dog or they, gr- they drown their five children. I mean, this is something that is a common denominator of all of these events. And this is what we need to address. If we're going to address mental health, we need to address the psychiatric side effect profiles of these drugs and how these may be complicit in this event. And is anybody, are there studies in the psychiatric world looking at that? Or is it everybody wants to kind of sweep it under the rug because nobody really wants to talk about it because so much of the research about anything is funded by lobbyists let's I'll just stick with the pharmaceutical industry that are funded by the drug lobbies. I mean, is somebody besides you and, you know, six of the people somewhere in another country doing research it's on this? It's not just that, Richard. Let's just I'm I'm a critically intelligent thinker and I know you are as well. So I just want to present this to you and your audience and I want people to think about this. My goal is not to get people to think like me. I my goal is to get people to think for themselves and to actually stop handing their authority over to other people, and that includes doctors and, and, you know, people that, that have letters behind their names that we tend to revere and put up on pedestals. If, okay, now I lost my train of thought. <laughs> get, get me back into to what you were saying to me because it, it just it had to do It had to do the, what I was saying was, you know, people looking at research, are there people doing research, and I was okay. saying how, that it was Thank the you. lobbyists that are funding that. There we go. I started to get emotional, and I thought, okay, I'm getting yeah. sidetracked here. I need, to, I need to stop. But I want you to think about the fact that if they're going to do studies about this, not only are you talking about a huge amount of money, because there's a huge markup on, on all of these psychiatric drug categories, thousands of percentages of markups, and you just talked about that in, you know, in your entry about a drug that they had done that. Well, that's exactly what they do with these particular drugs. Also, you're talking about categories of drugs that don't require any medical evidence to prescribe. So that's, that's another huge one. I don't have to prove that I have diabetes with a blood test in order to get my insulin or whatever. All I have to do is have someone say, this is what she has and this is what we recommend, okay? But not only that, psychiatry as a profession do not do anything other than medication management because that is what the psychiatric profession has become. It is now all about the biological intervention. And so if they say that they don't have anything in their armamentarium that is effective and they prove that psychiatric drugs are more harmful than they are beneficial, what is the whole profession of psychiatry going to do? That's it. Silence. I, I have to have a moment of silence there because what are they going to do? I mean, how exactly. can they? They're competing you know, they're not with psychologists. Say, the psychologists yeah. are the ones who do therapy, behavioral therapists, and all of that. Now, psychiatry would be out of business. So that's the reason we're not going to see these yeah. studies conducted. And if we do see them conducted, I have no faith. I have no confidence whatsoever after all of the knowledge. Believe me, I spend sometimes as many as 10 hours a day in research mode on the computer looking at clinical data. I was trained to do this stuff, and I used the skills that I was trained to dissect these this information and this clinical data and I look at stuff and I know for a fact that they only have to submit two studies to the FDA to get a drug approved that say that the drug's effective. So what they do is they 
they go out and they contract out with these third parties and they give them this information. Okay, this is what we want to prove. Now, you run these studies as many times as you absolutely have to to get this result. And when you get this result, then you bring them back to me. And they do this in third world countries. They do it in India. They do it in, in Africa. They do it. They go wherever they can that they can get vulnerable patient populations, that they can experiment, use their experimental drugs on the children and the, and the population who can't afford health care and all of that. I mean, it is absolutely diabolic when you look into it. It makes me ill to know that I contributed to this industry. And not only did I contribute, I was successful. And I was on the front lines and I was harming people. And when I think about it to this day, I couldn't live with myself if I didn't do what I do right now. And I'm still and emotional about it. Yes, yeah. And and how did it get set up that it only – who wrote the rules or how did the – whatever that procedure occur that it only takes two studies to get a drug approved? How does how I'm did that I'm sure occur? that was an FDA mandate. But, you know, a lot of people think that the FDA is the one who actually tests the drugs. That's not the case. It's the industry. It's the manufacturers who test the drugs. They just are responsible for submitting the two studies – for the FDA to review. Now, mind you, they could have done 250 studies that showed that the drugs were ineffective, that the drugs had all of these harmful side effects, but they can sit on those because that's considered proprietary information of economic value, and they don't have to disclose all that information. All they have to do is disclose the two studies that they probably came up with by the person which could have falsified the data, which, I mean, all you have to do is go read some of the remarks of, of some of the previous um, New England Journal of Medicine um, editors and some of, uh, I mean, just go and look at how much false information that they release about scientific studies. I mean, that is out there, and, and I encourage people, like I said, to do their own due diligence. Just just you know, Google it up or, or any other search engine that you want to use because, you know, Google's spying on you. So if you want to use another one, that's, <laughs> that's fine. But go and use a search engine and, and look this up and falsified research and be prepared for a can of worms that you'll open that will make you absolutely ill. So I have no confidence in clinical data anymore, even though that's one thing that I do look to. But, you know, I know that there's so much there's so many lies and so many falsehoods and so much collusion and collaboration that I just don't trust any of it anymore. So that's one of the reasons why I have turned to alternative health care, um, you know, outside other things to do. And I have maintained my health. I'm now 58 years old, and I haven't been on a drug since I was 33, 33 years wow. old. Wow. And, and is I there – and exercise and that thing. And, and that's what I really want to talk about before we run out of time is I want to give people some solutions for their kids and for themselves so that they don't have to, to end up in this nightmarish, um, you know, be the rat on the wheel like everyone else where they can't get off because once your kids get these diagnoses, once they go down this road, it's, it's a very difficult thing to turn around. Okay, I have a question first, then we'll, this will lead to that. Okay. In, in practitioners, there's a realm now, is, I, I can't exactly call it Western medicine, but I, I don't know what else to call it at this moment. There's a trend with functional medicine practitioners, and they're more oriented toward alternative, even though they're using lab work and regular testing, they're more oriented toward looking at diet, nutrition, and supplementation, and I don't know that they, I don't think they trend toward drugging. And the question is, it was probably about 20 years ago that I interviewed Doris Rapp, a medical doctor who wrote a book called, Is This Your Child? And it had to do with documented studies she did in classrooms. It's so long ago it was with film, actual film. And she would take a classroom and she would film a group of kids and in a standard cleaned classroom. And she would show, you know, acting out in various conditions. And this was long enough ago that this was, probably fairly pre-kids being drugged heavily. And then she would have a classroom that was cleaned with clean products and non-chemical cleaners and, you know, with full-spectrum lighting. And then she'd film that classroom, and she would see, you would see radical results. 
in terms of, you know, less agitation, less any of that. So the question is, which leads to what you're going to talk about, is is there any trend at all anywhere? Is there a glimmer of light in the psychiatric realm of thinking about any of that, like diet and health and being outside and vitamin D levels? And is there any of that? Not in the psychiatric realm. No, there is not. Again, because that's, that's not what they're trained to do. They're trained for medical intervention with medication and they treat the disease as being, or the, 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 um, diagnosis as being a disease state of the brain. So what you need to to understand, functional medicine definitely is on the rise. And if I were to have to see a doctor myself for anything, I would first seek out a functional medicine doctor or an integrative care physician, someone who had some knowledge if I felt like I was going to have to have some kind of, you know, surgery or, or uh, allopathic medical intervention. I would definitely look for someone who had that kind of credentials. And that is becoming more and more hopeful. But I think, I think there's a lot of that going on simply because doctors are losing business because we're becoming a more savvy patient population. People are starting to do their own research. People are starting to ask questions. And especially in, in my generation, the baby boomers are starting to push back because uh, we still have a lot of gumption, I think, you know, and we, we don't like authority. We, we grew up in an era where, you know, we kind of bucked authority quite a bit and we weren't as um, complacent about being told what to do. And so I think that that's a – I saw – the reason I'm saying this is I saw a – an AARP article that said that, that we were going to the baby boomer generation was going to cost the nation all of this money because we were refusing to take our pills and get our vaccinations. <laughs> and I had to laugh because I thought, yes, it's not the walking wounded that they have, you know, that are all around us because they're all zombified from the drugs that they're on or they've been damaged from the drugs that they've been given. You know, it's going to be the baby boomers who refuse to take their pills and who refuse to get their vaccines that's going to bankrupt the country. But anyway, it, I think that, you know, as people become more savvy, more educated, and they have the gumption to not let doctors intimidate them when they go in. And I know that this happens a lot, particularly in pediatric offices and psychiatric offices. You know, the doctor will present themselves as an authoritative figure, and you're not allowed to ask questions. If you're not allowed to have an interactive discussion and to be your own health advocate in a doctor's office, leave leave and find another physician. You wouldn't go and buy a new car by going to one place and letting somebody bully you into buying an automobile that you didn't want to buy. By God, don't allow anybody to do that with your health. You need to be more proactive and you need to stand up for yourself and you need to ask questions. And if you don't understand, then you have the responsibility for your own health, your own this is your vessel that God gave you to do whatever it is you came here on this planet to do. And it's your responsibility to take care of that body temple. So you have to go and do your own due diligence to where you can ask intelligent questions. And if you don't understand, find somebody who will answer your questions. Go out and doctor shop. And that's what I encourage people to do. I'm just, I'm just angry at this point in time. I've been angry because if I wasn't angry, I'd be so depressed over everything that was going on that I myself wouldn't have the ability to get out and speak up and, and do the things that I do. But I stay a little bit angry because that's just, you know, a level up on the emotional scale from, from being depressed to where that I can actually still do something and have the motivation to speak out and talk to people about this. So I encourage anyone and everyone to to not give in to doctors that, that bully them. If they're bullying you to get your newborn child to, to take a vaccine that you don't feel comfortable or getting your child to, to take a drug that you don't feel, feel comfortable putting them on, or even you, you need to speak up and you need to speak out and make a difference for yourself. And what can we do? Right, I'm ranting, to... aren't I? No, no, Rand, no, it's good. No, no, we could, uh, yeah, it's, it's good that we're riffing off of each other because we could both get into this like, rah, 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 and I'm mad as hell and I won't take it anymore. And I think that's where, you know, that's why I'm such a fan of Sherry's work because Sherry's all about us taking back our power, us really taking our health. I mean, yes, sometimes you need a doctor. Sometimes you need to have something, but it's well, exactly. good to have and education I, and I really before you go. 
Right, and I want to make this clear to your audience, and I try to make this clear to everyone that I talk to. I am not anti-drugs. I am not anti-doctors. What I'm against is people handing over their power to authority figures who think they know you and your body better than you do. Because, I mean, you know, I remember I did this myself. I had this personal experience myself. I had all of this education. I was selling drugs, and I was put on antidepressants, and I started having symptoms which I knew and clearly identified to be related to the drug. But when I went into the doctor's office, the doctor says, oh, no, that's not that because it's not in the package insert, but what you're experiencing is, you know, your depression is is, um, intensifying, so we need to double the dose until you get over this hump. And he put me into a state of psychosis, manic psychosis. And I didn't listen to my own body. I didn't listen to my own intellect. I didn't listen to my own internal warning system. And, and that's the reason why I am so adamant about that, because if I would do that, I know that a person without the education and that, you know, feels like that they don't have the right to, to tell this, this medical deity, which is what they think MD stands for, which just remember, people, it doesn't stand for medical deity. It stands for Mr. or Mrs. Drugs. That's what it stands for. Yes, (laughs) gnarly. Oh boy. Um, I don't know. It's you know what can we do? Let's try and go into the, you know, what can we do to support our children's health? Because as you said, it's so critical that they be given an opportunity for. You know, when does the brain start? Talk about the. Our brain is growing until it's about a certain age, and I mean, this is—they're trying to indoctrinate children into being drugged while their brains are still trying to build. This seems like very weak cement to be building a brain on. Exactly, opinion. exactly. And so you don't want—you don't want. Well, I mean, you can just see it, like for children that are diagnosed with ADHD and put on stimulants, they don't tend to grow as fast as their counterparts who aren't being drugged. You know, that means they're developing livers and kidneys and brains aren't, if they're not growing in height and they're not growing in weight and they're not, if they're stunted in their growth in that way, what other ways are they stunted in? Their organs aren't developing properly, perhaps, you know. So you have to realize that these drugs do have a deleterious effect on all of their, you know, not only just their emotional behavioral health, but on their physical health as well. So it's important when children are growing, there's just, There's some no-brainer things. Again, I said I'm 58 years old, so I was raised a lot differently than a lot of people raise their children in this day and age. And some of the things to me that seem to be no-brainers, a lot of people just don't think about anymore because we don't have the same lifestyles that we had back in, you know, the 50s and 60s and 70s. So I think it's important just to reiterate to people that when you can go back to the natural things that children should do, like children should play. And they should be encouraged to play. And when I say play, I'm talking about going outdoors, being in nature, being barefoot and grounding into the electromagnetic field of the earth, you know, their feet in the grass, if that's possible, playing and climbing trees, being out, not being inside on a video game or on a computer or watching television or being bombarded constantly by the electromagnetic field of Wi-Fi, which they get now in their schools and they have them at home and, and they have their own little cell phones that they carry around on their bodies half of the day. People need to be aware that these have very detrimental effects on their children's well-being and particularly on the way that their brains develop. There was a study that I, I read recently that I thought, I thought, oh, my God, they actually did a study about this, which I think was kind of amusing to me because I thought, I thought everybody knew that it was beneficial for us to be outdoors. I mean, if you go out and you sit down on a beach or you sit down next to a body of running water, it emits negative ions, which are wonderful for the mood. So if you have a problem with depression, whether you're an adult or whether you're a child, being near a body of water is 
very beneficial. When I was a child, I wanted to be, if I had, you know, I'd be out playing in a mud puddle if I could, or be in the creek, or be anywhere that I could get anywhere near a body of water. And I didn't know why I enjoyed that. I just wanted to be near water. And that's very important. And what I saw was the study actually measured nature's influence on brain structure and mental health in primary age school children. And I thought, well, wow, this is like a no-brainer to me that you should have children out. But what it was important that I, that I took away from this study was that the children who were raised in homes or in areas that were surrounded by greenery or they were taken to parks or they played outside on a regular basis. I mean, when I was growing up, I was in a farming area, so not only did we play out, we played out in the woods, we played out in the fields, we played in hay mounds, we were always near animals, always out in nature. And what that actually does is they measured more white matter and gray matter in the brain structure. And what white matter and gray matter are associated with is an increased cognitive function. And also, that makes a better working memory and reduced inattentiveness. So when you're talking about ADHD, just getting a child out to play, whether it's baseball or kickball or just running around or, you know, playing with the dog or whatever, it's imperative for children to be out in green areas and to be out breathing fresh air. And not only that, when they're out in the sunshine, they get vitamin D as well. So that's very beneficial to their health. So there's just one thing, getting children outdoors and encouraging them to play. And then again, like I said, taking away all those electronic devices to where they don't have them 24-7. I'm not saying don't permit them to have, you know, any computer time or any game time because you're going to get a huge pushback from your child about not being allowed to do it at all. But limit the amount of exposure that children have to those items. And don't allow them to put their laptops on their laps directly on their bodies. Make sure that if they're viewing them, they're viewing them on a desktop or somewhere where that they're removed from being directly in contact with their bodies. And also, if you do allow your child to have a cell phone, do not let that child wear the cell phone on their body and carry it in a pocket or put it like some teenage girls do in their bras. I mean, every time I see a woman do that, I just I cringe because I know that all of that all of the radiation and electromagnetism that comes off of that phone is just permeating that poor woman's breast tissue. And so we need to make sure that those items, if they are allowed for our children to have because you, you know, consider them to be necessary so that they can communicate with you after school or whatever, that you take them away from them and that they are limited to the amount of time and exposure. Don't allow them to sit and play games on their phones. Don't allow them to watch movies on their phones. That is very deleterious to their, their health. So you want to make sure that you, you know, limit and monitor the amount of time that they do have access to those items. And absolutely, positively do not allow these electronic devices into their bedrooms. The bedroom should be a sacred space where they go in to rest, relax, rejuvenate. They should never be allowed to have a cell phone by their bed or under their pillow or anywhere, their computers to where they can fall asleep with them in their bed. And even myself, at night, I make sure I, ha I don't have a television in my bedroom. I don't have a computer in my bedroom. I don't have any kind of electronics in my bedroom other than a light. That's all that I have in my bedroom. But I also make sure that I turn off my routers and my Wi-Fi and unplug those items during the night so that as I'm sleeping, it's not just bathing me in that electromagnetic field um, all the time that I'm trying to rest and trying to sleep. So these are things that you can do that will, you will notice a huge difference in your children's behavior because these things can cause agitation. And then, of course, you mentioned diet. Diet is like a number one thing that we can affect because the average American diet, we do so many fast foods, we eat so much sugar, consume all these grains that have um, gluten in them. A lot of children that are diagnosed with ADHD are sensitive to different food items, and so you may want to have them tested, find out if they have food allergies, and then try to regulate their diet to where they're not eating lots and lots of sugar, like sugary cereals in the morning, or lots of candies or candy bars or sodas and, and fruit drinks that have excess sugar and stuff in them. Try to get them healthier, 
whole fresh foods. I try to tell my clients as a health coach that if it comes in a bag or a box, don't buy it. That's my 3B rule. If it's in a bag or a box, don't buy it because that is not good whole nutrition. You want fresh foods, fresh vegetables, fresh meats, things that you go and you actually have to cook and make a meal like my mom used to have to do for me, and you're getting you know, good nutrition, higher protein in a diet for a child that has anxiety or has ADHD is also a very good thing, cleaner proteins. And then another thing that's very um, beneficial for children is to make sure that they consume the right amount of good fats. Essential fatty acids are called essential because you have to get them in the diet that you consume, okay? So it's important that for brain development and brain structure that you have a good um, combination of omega-3s and omega-6s. And the American diet generally goes heavy on omega-6s and light on omega-3s. So if you have to supplement, if you don't, you know, serve fish or like a lot of um, seafood type things that you can get omega-3s in your diet through that, you can take a supplement or give your child a supplement like krill or fish oil. And that's a good way to get more omega-3s into their diet. But also consuming good fats like coconut oil, avocado oils, uh, or just avocados, plain avocados are great. And olive oils are the best oils to be cooking with and to make sure that they get a good amount of uh, good fats into their diet. So that leaves pretty much a couple of other things which may be controversial to some people, but I encourage you also to do your due diligence about this. And that is if the water that you are consuming is either bottled and it's not spring water or it's not water that you can prove is not fluoridated, do not let your children or yourself try not to consume fluoridated water whenever possible. I know when I was in Texas, I actually got a whole house water treatment system that removed the fluoride from my water, and it was very, very high in the area that I came from in Austin, Texas. So I got a whole house water treatment system to take the fluoride out so that I wasn't showering because, you know, your skin is your largest organ, and and even if you don't drink fluoridated water, you're actually getting it every time you shower or you take a bath. So it's really important if you have a child that's been diagnosed with ADHD to make sure that you remove fluoride from their water. And if you can't afford a whole house system because it can be fairly pricey to get one of those, then there are there are um, things like the ProPure One that I use to just uh, take the fluoride out of my drinking water. There's special special filters that you have to get in order to get the fluoride out. There's also something called the Berkey which you can get that, and it's just to sit on the countertop. Of course, a lot of people are very um, strong advocates of the reverse osmosis, and um, I, I just encourage you to do your due diligence about water and to make sure that the water that you're getting and consuming and giving your children isn't fluoridated because I want to remind people that fluoride is a byproduct. It's, a, it's an industrial waste product that has been added to our water system. And we've been deceived. We've been told that this is for the benefit of our teeth and our dental health. And what I've actually done is looked at these studies and broken down these studies. And I remember that I was told, well, the reason they were putting fluoride treatments on my son's teeth when he was growing up was because, you know, people, the studies had proven that people who had fluoride in their, in their water or, or that were given fluoride treatments, they had fewer dental caries. Well, what happened was my son actually developed fluorosis, and this is a thing where the teeth get white, little spot spots all over them, and they look like, you know, it almost looks like they have chalk marks all over the teeth, and then they can even start to crumble if it's too severe. And too much fluoride can cause fluorosis, but it also decreases your um, IQ, and these have these studies have proven that children that have fluoridated water have lower IQs than children that do not consume fluoridated water. And that's another one of the reasons that I currently live in Costa Rica is because I can get clean, fresh well water that is not fluoridated and that's like 99.9% pure. Okay. Everybody take a breath. (laughs) Go outside, (laughs) hug a tree. 
you know, listen to sounds of nature. Uh, regard, regarding the, uh, we're coming to a close, but I want to toss in the, for the people out there that are um, uncertain or I don't know what to call it about the EMF or the laptop and all that, all that part of the issue, actually any of this section talking about health and the ideas. I'm a really big fan of Carolyn Raffensperger's, who's an environmental, pro-environmental attorney, uh, coined a term quite some time ago called the precautionary principle. And the idea is just that. If you're not sure, let's check it out before we do that. So I operate under the same idea, the precautionary principle, in that I'm with Gwen in my bedroom I have no electronics I don't take a cell I don't have Wi-Fi in there I don't take a cell phone to bed I don't have a laptop I don't fall asleep reading my tablet I don't do any of that when I go to sleep at night and I for a long time have advocated for people anybody I know who listens to me that your bedroom needs to be a place where your body can rest we do not know at this time what the state of confusion can be created by electromagnetic energies emanating into our system, which is kind of electrically based system. I mean, the little electrical things cause hormones to squirt and, you know, messages out of our brain look like sparks. So I just don't have any electronics in my bedroom. And I advocate for anybody I've ever worked with to not have any electronics in their bedroom. We don't need more confusion and agitation in our systems. I think we're agitated enough. Exactly. I'm in total agreement with you. Precaution is always good, but I'm and I often say, don't believe what I tell you. Don't believe what anybody tells you. Do your own research. You have the ability and the intellect to discern whether or not you're getting good information. And then just go with your gut because that will always be your guidance system that will that will lead you to where you need to be. And so, I mean, I encourage everyone to, to look up any of this stuff. If anyone would like to speak to me one-on-one, I do a health coaching service, and I am offering anyone that's listening to this program, if you will mention that this is where you heard me, I will give you a $50 deduction for our first meeting, and we can talk one-on-one about any and everything. I can give you the, the data, the studies, everything that I've referenced if you're interested in that. Or if you'd just like to email me, you're welcome to do that, but just know that I get a ton of email, and I'll get to you whenever that I can if you don't have the resources that you want to talk to me one-on-one. I'd also like to offer the audience, as I did last week, a free complimentary copy of my book, the e-book, Confessions of an RX Drug Pusher. If you'll contact me from my website, GwenOlson.com, hit the contact button. Just tell me that you heard me on the radio today and that you'd like a complimentary copy of my book. I will send it to you free of charge. I do this because this is my heart's work and this is my spiritual mission. And I have formed a nonprofit organization called the Gwen Olson Foundation for Health Sovereignty for anyone who would like to support this cause and like to help me continue to do this work. I I would any and every contribution would be most appreciated. But I am also here to serve the people that cannot and do not have the resources to get the information. So please do your own due diligence and if you need some clarification, I'm here for anyone that would like it. And passionate and intermittently <laughs> cranky. And I respect all of that. No, I'm actually, I've made up, I have my own Gwynism for that. I'm compassionate, which means I'm compassionate and I'm pissed off and I'm doing something about it. Ooh, that's awfully good. Ooh, I'd wear that T-shirt. I'd wear that baseball cap, compassionate. Ooh, that's good. I like it. All right, everybody. I think we have to stop. We could go on for another several hours <laughs> easily. Um, <laughs> that was really great, Gwyn. I'm so happy we actually got to just speak <laughs> without yes, technical issues. And thank and, you for having um, me back. Thank you, Sherry. I know you can't speak to me, but, but I admire you and I admire your work. And I'm very pleased that I had an opportunity again to speak to your people. Sherry's waving from Skype. <laughs> <laughs> she just texted me. Um, once again, I'll remind everybody that you can find this show in about 10 to 15 minutes after we end by going to soundhealthoptions.com. Click on the uh, radio tab and then click on the Blog Talk Radio Archive player and you'll be able to find last week's show and this week's show. 
And uh, same thing when you go to iTunes or Pocket Cast, my preferred podcast aggregator for a bunch of reasons. Uh, and search for Sherry Edwards and you'll find any of the almost 600 hours of shows. Really? Wow. Uh, 600 hours of shows <laughs> available and Gwen's will be there. And the great thing about using, well, even Stitcher, which is cross-platform, is that you can share that show with others because I know there are moms out there listening or husbands out there that are listening that have people that want to know this about their kids. And this is such great, powerful information and really part of the Sherry thinking of taking back our power. You know, let's let's take our ability to... You know, when we go, if we do need to go to a doctor, have information, be educated, be willing to say no, <laughs> no, you're silly. I'm finding another practitioner. I clean that up a lot. Um, so, thank you, thank you again, Gwen. That was great. And thank, thank you, you, Sherry. I know we'll we'll have you back again soon. <laughs> <Everybody have a> great <laughs> Make it a great day, everyone. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.